What is unique about the giving of the Torah? We know that there were people like our forefathers who learned the Torah even before it was given. The Talmud tells us that the great sage of Yosef would say, if not for that day, how many Yosefs would there be out there in the marketplace? So what is he saying? Is he saying that there's something special about the Torah? Is it about the fact that we as individuals, the Jewish people, are Hashem's chosen people, but then why does he identify himself as unique? What exactly is the message of the uniqueness of the moment of the giving of the Torah? The Gemara Psachim gives one of the statements of our sages to illustrate the greatness of the giving of the Torah. And that statement is, Rav Yosef, when it was the holiday of Shavuos, Rav Yosef would say, Omar, He said, make a beautiful piece of meat for me. Why? What was the celebration? Omar, he would explain. If not for the impact of this day and the way that it has influenced my life, or the way it has influenced things, Kama Yosef how many Joes would there be out in the marketplace? And there are quite a, a number of things about his statement that we need to understand and appreciate. There are a few questions that arise amongst them. Why does he emphasize that if not for that day, what's he really trying to say? Look at what Rashi says. Rabbi Yosef is saying, I'm different to other people who have not learned Torah because I have learned Torah. So if that's what his message is, look how different I am because I have the gift of Torah. Why does he say it in an unclear fashion? If not for the day, why didn't he say things clearly? If not for the Torah or something like that, I would have been just another Joe in the marketplace. So that's question number one. Why speak about the day rather than about what was given on the day, which is surely more important? Considering that Rav Yosef highlights that we have the greatness of learning Torah, surely the greatness of learning Torah is not anchored only to that day, the 6th of Sivan in the year 2448. Because there was Torah study already long beforehand. As the Chazal tell us, throughout the entire history of our forefathers, they never lost the opportunity of sitting and learning Torah. Even when they were in Egypt, they had Torah centers with them. Avram Avinu, when he was an old man, sat and he learned Torah. Why is Rabbi Yosef emphasizing that date, the date of the 6th of Sivan? Surely he should be talking about the value of the Torah, which precedes that date. Also, Gamsar Lahavin, his wording is a bit unusual. What's he adding by saying, if not for that date, that caused this greatness. He could have just said very simply, if not for that day, why that day that caused something to happen, caused what to happen? So it's a pretty cryptic statement. We need to understand it. Some people will say, well, really what he meant to say is <clears throat> it's not about the greatness of the giving of the Torah because the Torah was already there before, but that's the day we became Hashem's chosen people. That's what Rabbi Yosef was celebrating. Maybe that's the answer. When Rav Yosef speaks about that day, he's not talking about the greatness of that day being the date of Matan Torah. 
Rather, he's alluding to the fact that on that day, that impacted us that we should be Hashem's treasure in the face of all other nations, which means that Hashem selected us out of every other nation and every other language. That's why Rabbi Yosef is very distinct to the other Jews out there in the marketplace because he's part of the chosen people. Which would explain why he didn't say, if not for the Torah, but he specifically says it's because of the day. And then it, it would make sense that he's saying the day caused some change. Which would emphasize that he's not talking about the fact of the giving of the Torah, but rather something else that was caused specifically by this day, namely that that's the day we became the chosen people. Sounds beautiful, but it's not really what he's saying because even if it's one of the things that Rav Yosef had in mind, that certainly cannot be the entire reason. Because if you look at Rashi, who obviously is the leader of all simple explanations of what the Gemara is telling us, explains that what was Rav Yosef saying, if not for that day, that now I had the opportunity to study Torah. So there you have it. It's about Torah. Especially if you look in context, the preceding and following paragraphs all speak about the greatness of Torah. So it must be that Rabbi Yosef is also speaking not about the uniqueness of the Jewish people in this conversation, but the greatness of Torah. And especially when you consider, let's say it's true that he is celebrating being chosen people. That's not something that only Rabbi Yosef would have experienced. All people in the Jewish nation are part of the selected few. Whereas Rabbi Yosef says his statement in such a way as if to say there's something about me and who I am that benefits from this day in an unusual way. Now you've got to wonder, well, what is it about Rabbi Yosef that is so unique compared to everybody else? But before we can do that, we also have to look at various other uh, details within the way Rabbi Yosef structured his statement. Yosef, a few other nuances to examine. As two in specific in particular that we're going to look at. First of all, Yosef Why does he specifically say, if not for this day, there's so many other Yosefs out there? Why don't you just say there's so many other people out there? Why is the name Yosef so important to the discussion so that Rav Yosef can highlight what special benefit? He received from Torah more than everybody else. And Rashi even points this out and he says, what was Rav Yosef saying? He was saying there are many people out there in the market who have the name Yosef, but they're not like me. Doesn't sound like he's just saying there are many nations on earth and they're not like the Jews. There's something about himself that he wants to convey over here and we need to know what it is. Also, secondly, also, what's the difference where the Yosefs are? <laughs> Surely the, the thing is, there are other people out there. Why do we need to know they're in the marketplace? Why don't you just simply say there are many Yosefs? Why do I need to know? No, Yosefs in the marketplace. Ah, so you'd say, you know why he said the marketplace? Because he wants to illustrate what distinguishes him from all those other Yosefs. Because they're hanging around in the market and he's in the, in the yeshiva studying. 
Let's be honest, we knew that even if he didn't say marketplace, we know where Rav Yosef lives, where he breathes, where he spends his time. And surely his message should have been, if not for the giving of the Torah, there would be no yeshivas. The whole world would have just been simply a marketplace. So why do I have to know that he specifies those other people in the marketplace? Surely that's self-explanatory. So the answer is, we need to appreciate what was the great innovation of the giving of the Torah. And that innovation is impact of holiness on the world. Rahabiribah's explanation is this. The clear distinction between the experience of learning Torah and observing mitzvahs prior to the giving of the Torah. As we've already alluded to, there was Torah learning before. And just like the Chazal tell us that they learned Torah before the giving of the Torah, they tell us that they did mitzvahs as well. For example, it says Avram Avinu fulfilled the entire Torah before it was even publicly given. So there's a big distinction between that and how the experiences after the Torah was given. What's the big and obvious distinction? Prior to the giving of the Torah, anybody who did anything that the Torah expected did so on a voluntary basis. And once the Torah was given, we the Jewish people now became commanded and instructed to do these things. Now, what's the difference between doing something because you volunteer versus because you're told by Hashem? The obvious is, well, obviously, if I'm instructed to do something, it's not just my input. There's God's input as well. But here's the chap. After the giving of the Torah, the great shift that happened was not only just a massive shift of me, the person fulfilling the mitzvah. That maybe because now you're instructed to do it, you're going to receive greater reward because you're doing what Hashem wanted. But the big deal over here is that the object that you will use to do the mitzvah is a fundamentally different object after the giving of the Torah to how it may have been influenced had you done a mitzvah before the giving of the Torah. So this is the big deal. The physical world changes because of the mitzvah. Prior to the giving of the Torah, any mitzvah was a voluntary contribution of a person relative to their abilities. It was not because Hashem had instructed it. So therefore, we people do not have the power to reconfigure the essence and the nature of an item that Hashem had created. Hashem created it as a physical item, and we don't have the capacity that it should now become a holy item. We don't have the capacity to do that. Prior to the giving of the Torah, if a person would take an object and perform a mitzvah with it, the benefit would go to the person. The person would have been somehow shifted and elevated, and the item could have been discarded straight afterwards. But after the giving of the Torah, when Hashem is the one who gives the context that this is a proactive mitzvah that you have to do, and that is a transgression that you have to avoid, because it's the Eibishner's input, it affects not only you, the person doing the mitzvah, but the item, the physical object that is engaged in the mitzvah. Because of the Eibishner's input, via this instruction, 
The human is now empowered to change the item. It used to be leather, now it's tefillin. Or the other way around. And I vary, you can turn something into toxic energy. So in today's world, when a Jewish person observes a positive mitzvah of the Torah, so the simple understanding is what happens? I'm a human doing a mitzvah. But not only that, but through my mitzvah performance, this item is now transformed. There are who knows how many pieces of leather out there. This one is tefillin. has to be treated in a completely different way. It is imbued with holiness. And the flip side on the negative mitzvahs. If a person transgresses, the person hasn't only affected themselves and now they are deserving of who knows what. But you've actually changed that particular object from being benign to becoming malignant spiritually. So our impact post the giving of the Torah is most noticeably different in how we change the world, how we touch the world. And that explains something the Rebbe explains in far greater detail elsewhere. That when Avram Avinu wanted Eliezer to swear that he will follow the correct instructions to find the right wife for Yitzchak. Now, in order to swear, you're supposed to hold an item that is considered holy. He said something that sounds very inappropriate. Place your hand under my thigh, which surely is the antithesis of modest behavior. And seeing as we know that Avram Avinu kept the entire Torah, surely he had a bookshelf full of uh, Jewish scrolls. Surely he had a, some kind of a tefillin or so, something that he could have used. Why this, which seems so awkwardly inappropriate? The reason is Why did Avram do, Avinu do all of those things? And Pesach, etc. Why? Because he volunteered. He understood intuitively, spiritually what is required. And he went and he did it. And because he did it on his own steam, A human, even a great human like Avram Avinu, does not have the capacity to transform an item into a chefza shel kedusha, a holy item. Milvad mitzvahs mila dekemish nistavak acharis and nasa chefetz kodesh, except for the bris. That's the one mitzvah he waited until he was instructed by Hashem to do it, and only then was it transformed into a chefza shel kedusha, which you could use in order to anchor an oath. So that's why he says sim no yotka. What he wasn't doing some kind of bizarre ceremony. And yet, the interesting thing is that the Rambam tells us, in spite of the fact that there was the one mitzvah that he had to wait, because you only get one shot at this, right? Obviously, if he already had the bris, and then later Hashem instructs him, it's too late. Even if he does a little bit of hatavas dam bris, it's not the same. 
So the the one mitzvah that Avraham Avinu did, as you and I do mitzvahs, on Hashem's instructions, and nevertheless, on a mafal pichen kos of Rambam, the Rambam tells us very important insight. We do not have a bris today because Avraham Avinu did it. We have a bris today because there was an instruction from Hashem at Matan Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu like every other mitzvah. And that's interesting because the wording that Hashem used to Avram Avinu is that this bris is for you and your descendants through the generations. Still, because in spite of the fact that there was the possibility of Avram Avinu imbuing holiness into his physical body through the action of a breast, it is not as powerful as when Hashem himself gives it as this carte blanche mitzvah across the board for every Jew in the whole of history. That's when it becomes that you really transform the body through this particular mitzvah. There are various reasons for this, one of which is If you think about it, Avram Avinu got to hear the mitzvah because he was a prophet who could access prophecy that came to him as an individual. That obviously is completely different to the presentation at Matan Torah. Where Debesh was opening the sluice gates of spirituality so that all Jews could access all of the mitzvahs. It's very different to one mitzvah to one person at one point in time. So again, what is the whole big achievement of the giving of the Torah? That we are empowered through our deeds to transform the physical reality to become holy. With that in mind, let's go back to what Rav Yosef is saying. His name is no accident. The Yosefs in the marketplace are also no accident. And the marketplace is not an incidental description. All of this illustrates this point. Now we understand what Rav Yosef was saying. He says, If not for the special day and the impact that it had, come Yosef He's not asking how many other Yosefs would there be in the market. He's asking generically, would there be any Yosefs in the market? We have already identified that even without the Torah formally being presented, there would always be people who learned Torah, and like Avram and family, and there'd always be people who do mitzvahs. But the whole point of the giving of the Torah and the way we observe mitzvahs today is Yosef, which comes from the word to add, add something that wasn't naturally there. The capacity to add holiness to a world that is not naturally holy. But this concept of all these Yosefs, the impact that we'd have through our Torah mitzvahs, on the world, without the giving of the Torah, the world would remain a marketplace. The world would remain separate from God. We'd just be adding and adding holiness in our little enclaves. And the world out there would remain as much a wreck as it is now. It would remain a so-called public space as it was before giving, before we did the mitzvahs. In other words, there'd be a lot of Yosef, but the shuk would be a shuk. There'd be a lot of Torah and mitzvahs, but the world would remain a dark place. That's Rav Yosef's celebration. Because of the giving of the Torah, our mitzvahs make sure the world is no longer dark. 
That's because prior to the giving of the Torah, the impact of the mitzvah was only on the practitioner of the mitzvah. And there was zero impact in a meaningful way on the world to transform it to become holy. But specifically because of that great day of Matan Torah, where the Eibishter empowered us to do Torah mitzvahs by instructing us to do them, that's Poyal Yosef, that causes an addition, that impacts the world, that the world is no longer a place devoid of holiness. We are no longer living in a world where we are moved as people because of our spiritual journey and the world gets left behind. But the items that we use become holy and the world we live in performing those mitzvahs is elevated to holiness. Now, Rashi actually really alludes to this in his commentary because Rashi, look at what Rashi said when he translates what Rav Yosef was saying, if not for this day, says Rashi, what happened on this day? That I got to learn Torah and I was elevated. Where in Rabbi Yosef's statement did Rashi extract that message that Rabbi Yosef is saying, and I was elevated? Surely the simple meaning of his statement was, By virtue of him learning Torah, He is fundamentally different to everybody out there who's not learning Torah. And that's it. Where does he say, and I'm elevated further? But in context of what we've just explained, actually Rashi was exactly to the point. Just like we said, yes, there were mitzvahs before the giving of the Torah, and what has now changed is the capacity to transform the objects into holy objects by doing mitzvahs with them. That was discussing what happens when you do a mitzvah with an object. What happens when you learn Torah with a brain, with a human body? Yes, of course. Prior to the giving of the Torah, you could understand Torah just as well and you could acquire the wisdom of Torah just as well as you could now. But nonetheless, it didn't change the mechanics of your brain to become holy. But after the Torah is already given, you don't just now get points for having studied Torah in order to bank them in the next world. But rather, you are a different human. A human that has Torah absorbed into them is a holy human. As Rashi says, I've been elevated. The person who studies Torah now becomes an elevated, holy human. So this is Rabbi Yosef's message. My big celebration on Shavuos is the fact that the Ebesha gave us a Torah that wouldn't just give us access to his rewards, but would elevate us and the world around us to become holy. That's worth celebrating. Which also helps us understand the so-called extra words. Ilav the the day caused something to happen. You see, what Rabbi Yosef tells us about the greatness of the special day, there's another layer to it that we may have missed previously. 
Prior to the giving of the Torah, there was no such thing as a holy item and equally no such thing as a forbidden item. There were only instructions to people. You know, it's similar to like a Nazir. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with wine. There's an instruction to the Nazir. You may not drink it. Either you do X or you don't do Y. Now that changed. After the Torah is given. This is fascinating. Before you do a mitzvah, or God forbid, before the person entertains the possibility of doing an Avera, there are physical things in this world that are already in the realm of either belonging to the realm of holiness or the realm of impurity. So, for example, if something is not kosher, the item is not kosher. Prior to the giving of the Torah, if an item is not kosher, it means you may not eat it. Now it means that item is impure. And likewise, if there's a kosher animal prior to the giving of the Torah, that means that the kosher animal could facilitate you getting on Hashem's good side. Now it means this is an entity that is susceptible to holiness. Now, we do actually find some evidence of this, going back to the example we used before, even before the Torah was given. One of the reasons given why Avram Avinu did not have a bris, he did all the other mitzvahs, he didn't have a bris before it was given. Even though he did everything else, one of the explanations is, This is a fascinating insight. If there is no mitzvah to circumcise, then there's no such thing as a foreskin. In other words, there's a physical foreskin. But it doesn't have the, the, the categorization of Orla, which means something that is an impediment to holiness. It cannot exist. There can't be a blockage to holiness if there's no access to holiness through the physical world. So there is no concept of circumcision. If he would have removed the foreskin, it would have just been like some kind of a superficial surgery with zero spiritual impact other than getting the credit for having done a mitzvah. You'll argue the same thing for matzah, right? There is no inherent value in the matzah. You eat matzah on Pesach as Avram Avinu. You get points, but you don't actually engage the physical. So there's no real concept of matzah, which means there's no real concept of chometz. And so to various other mitzvahs, there's no real concept of a lulav, etc. That didn't stop Avram Avinu. So what's the big roadblock over here with the bris? If you ate matzah, it still fell into the category of doing the action of eating for the sake of a mitzvah, even if the food itself did not become mitzvah food. There are various experiences of eating. As we know that Avram Avinu served his guests. Plus there's the principle of giving tzedakah. That, that money doesn't become holy even though you're fulfilling the action of giving tzedakah. The food doesn't become holy even though you're sharing it with your guests or you're eating it as matzah. Plus, if you fulfilled the mitzvah of matzah one year, it's not that you've cancelled the possibility of that mitzvah ever again. Even though 
if Avram Avinu would have circumcised himself. Before there really is the concept of an Orler, he would have blocked the possibility ever again of getting that mitzvah. You eat matzah this year on human terms, next year you could potentially do it on godly terms. We're going to see the same principle plays out after the giving of the Torah. The whole thing of once the Torah is given is that it's not just that you, the individual, are forbidden from that activity or item. That forbidden item is inherently objectionable. And that we can relate to, right? That we can relate to because we know you see a chaza, you say, keep me away from that. It is disgusting. Not just, I'm not allowed to have it. That's on the negative side, and the same applies on the positive. Even before you, the person, has done the mitzvah. The fact that that object is suited to a mitzvah means there's already some holiness assigned to that concept even before you do the mitzvah. Such a concept was unthinkable before the Torah was given. That what? Just because that's a cow, it's a potential safer Torah? Don't think that way. It wasn't possible. Okay. Of course, it's self-understood. It goes without saying that the item only becomes holy when it is actually used for a mitzvah. Right, you've got a whole tree of estrogen. Not all of them are holy. They're all potentially holy. They're aligned with holiness. They're susceptible to holiness. But when you take that particular one and use it as an estrogen circus, it becomes holy. The fact is, before the Torah was given, all the estrogen on the tree, and even the one that you had used, had zero holiness to them. This is the big revolution of the giving of the Torah. Up here now, with that information we'll be able to understand another saying of our sages, which also doesn't really seem to make sense. We'll be able to understand something written in the Mechilta, which is, at face value, really difficult. When commenting on the Pasuk that tells us, that you have to tell your son on that day as follows, it's because of this that Hashem did to me, when he took me out of Mitzrayim. In other words, what's the Torah telling us? We have a responsibility to relate the story of Yetzias Mitzrayim to our children. says, When does this happen? You'll recognize this from the Pesach Seder. You might think that you have to start telling the story on the first of Nisan. The Torah says, No, it has to be on that day that it happened. Aha, okay, so you're telling me basically the 14th going into the 15th. So you'd think, okay, maybe I have to do it during the daytime. Right? I would have thought, Talmud doesn't say only that you say, relate the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim on that date. But it's got to be when these items are in front of you. Which items? is always something that you can actually point at. It's, it's very tangible. It's in the immediate setting. It means that the matzah and the maror and the mar are right there in front of you. So why would we have thought otherwise? Why would you have ever thought that you should be telling Yitzhak Mitzrayim on Rosh Chodesh Nisan? 
explain the Mephoshim, the reason anybody would have imagined that perhaps the mitzvah to tell the story of the Exodus begins on Rosh Chodesh, when was it that Moshe conveyed all of the details of Pesach, the Korban Pesach, when you eat it, how you eat it, all of which would have uh, prepared us for and, and, and caused the Exodus? So you'd think, okay, just like in the original, the story of what you meant to do started on Rosh Chodesh. So now you would think the story of what we did, maybe should have also started on Rosh Chodesh. Therefore, come along, Chazal and the Mechil, and tell us, the Pasuk teaches us, this Pasuk, the Torah is clarifying, no, it's got to be on the day it happened. And which time of that day, the time you're sitting down to your Pesach, say it with a Pesach Matzah Now let's analyze this, because we need to understand what's happening over here. If you read at face value what the Mechilte is saying, What's the Michilta telling us? Really simply, you have to tell the story of the Exodus at the same time you're eating matzah It's not telling us over here that the story, telling the story of Itzias Mitzrayim, has some other meaning or other uh, uh, parameters. Even if you had to take the original thinking of the Mechilta, if you would still say that the Pasuk means, should tell your son that this is what Hashem did for me. What is the Pasuk telling me? Everybody would recognize simply that the story of Yetzias Mitzrayim belongs together with the eating of Matzah and Moror. And you have to mention all of these details, the details of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the details of the Matzah All we're learning over here is when that happens. You know, I never thought that it wasn't part of the Pesach Matzah I only wasn't sure when everything should happen. So now I know everything has to happen at the time allocated by the Torah for Pesach Matzamor. That's the time that the story has to be told. So we came in a movement. So let's ask ourselves a simple question. We know, everybody knows that Yetzias Mitzrayim, the story, is linked inherently to the exercise of eating Pesach Matzah which only became a thing on the 15th of Nisan. So what's the connection to Why would you think for any reason at all that this is something you should be doing on Rosh Chodesh or even on Erev Pesach? Why would you think it? Again, we know and we accept according to every view of this Mechilta, including the Havamina which we override, that in order to tell the story of Yetzias Mitzrayim, it is linked to Matzah and Moror, and Pesach Matzah and Moror. And we all know that Pesach Matzah and Moror are only relevant on the 15th of Nisan. 
Who would have entertained the thought that the story starts two weeks earlier? Birbazokinal's explanation is in line with what we've said about the huge revolution of the giving of the Torah. Rosh Chodesh, as we said, is when the instructions were given for everything. The Karm Pesach, the Matzah, the Mor. Hooray, what happened at that point? When you're instructed that these are the items to use, they at that point become susceptible to becoming Chefzah they are now no longer just ordinary flower cakes. They're no longer just an animal. These are now part of the process of holiness. Something has changed. When Avraham Avinu ate his carbon Pesach all those years before, it wasn't a Chetzah Kedusha. Rosh Chodesh is where the shift happened. Rosh Chodesh Nisan, in that year of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, was the first time that items to be allocated for a mitzvah were going to be physically transformed. So the revolution has already taken place. Maybe that's the day that is relevant. By the way, this dovetails with the view. We know that the tradition is you start learning halacha 30 days before a holiday, but before a Yom Tov. But there's another view that says you start two weeks before, and that dovetails perfectly over here. Which means even today we're supposed to be learning those halachas at that particular time, which means already from Rosh Chodesh, our matzah and Mara becomes relevant. That's why there would have been logic to offer to say you should be telling your child the story from the moment that the impact of the new experience of Judaism that the Avos never had, namely a Judaism that changes the physical world because of our activities, already began then. That's when the Yitzias Mitzrayim started that's when we should be talking about it we should start discussing and the story of the exodus because from a Torah perspective the instruction has been given that means that the reality has begun to unfold the item has begun to be susceptible to holiness then the Mechilta continues. Okay, there might be another logical proposition here. Ah, the Pasuk says, but it's got to be on that day. That tells me Rosh Chodesh is premature, even though Rosh Chodesh is already giving impetus to these items to turn them into Pesach Matzamor. The Torah says it's got to be that day. Fine. Fine. So from Erev Pesach. Why Erev Pesach? Because Ere Pesach, you are now, you've selected the specific lamb that you're going to use for the Korban Pesach. That was the key through us earning the rights to leave Mitzrayim because we had the mysterious nefesh to do this activity of taking their gods and tying them to the bed, etc. And now not just tying, we're ready to shecht it. Now it's no longer just a theoretical instruction. Now we've entered the time frame where we are now obliged to do this activity, to shech this animal. 
Now's the time for you to shecht your Korban Pesach. Now, surely now your Korban Pesach is 100% Chetzat de Kedusha. And so surely now you should start talking about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which is linked to it. So therefore the Mechilta has explained to us that in conclusion, that the Torah specifically wants us to know it has to be Bavurze, it has to be live. Those, those objects have to physically be on the plate. When is it appropriate to mention, let alone fulfill, the mitzvahs of Pesach Matzamor, and therefore, and as a result of that, to be able to fulfill the mitzvah to speak of the Exodus? It all has to be at a time when you can actually do the mitzvahs, which is at night. Only at the point where you can actually do the mitzvah, to eat the matzah, because there's no value in eating matzah on Erev Pesach, or Morah for that matter, or even eating the Korban Pesach, even though it was shechted before, but we know that the whole reason it was shechted is, as we're going to see in a moment, to be able to eat it. So until you can actually fulfill the mitzvah, there's zero value in speaking about the Yitzhak Mitzrayim because you haven't yet fully, you've got the potential, but you haven't actually translated that Chepza into a Chepza Dikidusha. It's not only relevant to the Matzah even with regards to the Pesach sacrifice itself. Even though you already slaughtered it on Erev Pesach. And it's 100% according to all views now considered holy meat that has to be treated in a very unique way Still, seeing as we know the only purpose of Shechna in the Korban Pesach is to eat it, unlike other Korbanis, where part of it is to be sacrificed on the altar. That means that the full impact of this animal of this animal being transformed into a holy item only happens at the Seder when the responsibility for us to eat it Kicks in. This is Rav Yosef's point. If you use a word like Gorim, this day caused something to happen. What are you actually saying? You're not just saying this day caused a change in the world, which is true. But you're saying something more subtle than that. This day doesn't change the world. It creates a cause for change in the world. Rosh Chodesh Nisan, you announce, or Hashem announces to us, that there's a mitzvah of Korban Pesach, doesn't automatically make all the animals into a chefzah dikidusha. It creates a cause that will make those animals a chefzah dikidusha. Vecheinu benidoin didan, which is exactly what we're experiencing over here. Kamoishin is borlil, we already mentioned before. Hachalois v'shinei achefzah. Where is the actual change in the physical reality of this world? Or in Rav Yosef's example, v'nisrei mamti, in me, that my person is elevated. You know when it happens? Not at the moment of giving up the Torah. That's when the potential was created. You know when it happens? When you actually learn. When you actually do the mitzvah. It's this day that caused that now when I learn or do the mitzvah, the physical reality changes and in two ways. Aleph. 
The first thing that changed at the time of the giving of the Torah is now the possibility exists of a holy item and a spiritually toxic item, a permitted and forbidden item, or more than permitted, it's, it's for the sake of a mitzvah. This item is now susceptible and usable as a mitzvah item. Goram, this day caused this item to now be ready for use as a mitzvah and therefore to become holy. Caused that item to be forbidden and therefore objectionable. Second of all, we also changed. Not only did the world change, we changed. That was the end of the so-called conversion process of the Jewish people. We then entered under the canopy of the Divine Presence. As we know very well, the person who converts is considered like a newborn. We became completely reconstituted, not only as a chosen nation by virtue of our souls, but a chosen nation by virtue of our bodies, that the Jewish body becomes shel an elevated holy item. Umi because that happened to us. We each now have the potential. He has an item that, because of Matan Torah, has been made ready for Mukhshar, <coughs> ready to become holy. And he has a person who has the power to make things holy. So now we, through our actions, are able to make those transformations consistently all the time. And we're doing it all the time. We're taking regular items and turning them into holy items by following Torah and mitzvahs. To the extent that not only does the item change, but the place the item lives in, the marketplace changes, it's no longer a shuk. Not only are they Yosef's, but the Yosefs are not in the shuk. Not only are the individuals who are growing spiritually, but they're not growing spiritually in a vacuum. Their spiritual development impacts the entire world that they live in and elevates it. Which happens to us too. When you actually learn Torah, you change. As Rashi says, you become elevated. Over and above the fact that you were already holy, the holiness is now on steroids. Now, that surely is mind-blowing stuff. It leaves us with one niggling question, though. Hang on a second. Surely that happens to every single Jewish people, every single Jewish person. Why is Rav Yosef saying it as if it's something unique that happened to him? What's he so excited about more than you and I? What's so excited Yosef? Why is Rav Yosef the first person to mention this? No question to anybody who lived after Rav Yosef because they could say he already taught this principle. There were so many great Gemara sages before Rav Yosef. Before that, all the Tanoim of the Mishnah. None of them made this big, powerful announcement. Wow, if not for this day, who knows where we would have been. So we've got to understand something about Rav Yosef. What's the uniqueness of this day of Matan Torah? We said the big difference is up until that point, everybody were volunteers. And now we are instructed to do what Hashem wants. And that changes everything. That changes the nature of mitzvahs. It also tr- 
uh, changes the, the, the reality of things with regards to what is forbidden, not just in terms of the laws, but the items themselves. So, let's ask an interesting question of you. Let's drill this down. Okay, so what are we saying? Before the Torah was given, everybody did a mitzvah out of the goodness of their heart. After the Torah was given, you, you do a mitzvah because Hashem told you to, and therefore you're empowered by Hashem's infinite power. Therefore, after the giving of the Torah, your mitzvah changes the item to become holy. Now, is that because you're instructed? In other words, Is it because of the instruction that is personal to you? You are required to fulfill this mitzvah or to avoid that transgression. Is that why Is that what turns that item holy? But theoretically, if a person is not obligated to fulfill a certain mitzvah, does that mean they are incapable of imbuing holiness into a particular item? Or should we say, The giving of the Torah changed every single Jewish person. So every one of us is now inherently holy. And every item in the world changed to either be something which could be transformed through practice into an object of mitzvah, or everything in the world was, uh, not everything, a whole element of things in the world was turned into something that if you behave inappropriate with it, it becomes unhealthy. So therefore, then maybe it's not dependent on the individual. Maybe it's just the fundamental reality of our world. Now, where is this relevant practically? Let's use one example, and then we'll get to the example that is most relevant to Rav Yosef. Women are exempt from any positive time-bound mitzvah, like shaking a lulav and esrog. And nevertheless, there's certain mitzvahs that we say, you know, go ahead, fulfill them, it's okay. So now, yes, we have to ask. If a woman shakes a lulav and esrog, what happens? Does she have the same experience of Avram Avinu before the giving of the Torah? Meaning, she has now earned the points associated with that mitzvah. But the Lulav and Esrog is not, is not transformed in any way. Or is the mitzvah say, going to impact that Lulav, even though the practitioner wasn't required to do it? This would have practical implications. Umihem, for example. For example, an esrog. Once the esrog has been allocated for a mitzvah, you are not allowed to have any personal benefit from that esrog for the entire seven days of Sukkot. So now, Yeshli Stapeg asks the question: In Do we have the same issue if a woman buys herself an esrog? She's not required to use it. Is she allowed to eat the esrog halfway through the the, the holiday? Or do we say that the actual esrog was impacted to become a holy item which is off limits for personal use or not? In other words, is it because something happened in Matan Torah or the thing that happened in Matan Torah is only affected by people who are required to do those mitzvahs? Now, why is this relevant to Rabbi Yosef? We need to know the biography of Rabbi Yosef. The same question would apply to somebody who is blind because the According to Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, a blind person is exempt from all mitzvahs. So according to that view, 
So if a blind person chooses to do a mitzvah, of course he'll get credit for doing the mitzvah, but does that change the nature of the item as if it was an ordinary person doing the mitzvah or not? Now Rav Yosef was blind. We see Rav Yosef says something interesting. Omer Rav Yosef. Meirei, she says originally, I used to think, if anybody's going to tell me that the halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda, who says, who says that blind people are exempt from all mitzvahs, if somebody could prove to me that that's true, I would make a whole celebration. My timer? Why? Because I would say, look, what an incredible merit I have to do things I'm not even required to do. Whereas when I heard what Rabbi Hanina taught, where he taught that actually the person who fulfills a mitzvah that they are required to do is superior to a person who fulfills a mitzvah they are not required to do. I changed my tune, says Rabbi Yosef. Then I said, Anybody who says the halacha does not follow Rabbi Yehuda but rather follows the sages, in other words, a blind person is also required to do mitzvahs, I'll make a big fabrengen for all the sages. My time away. Because now I'm doing what I'm required to do. It's much more valuable. That tells you something about Rav Yosef's perspective. The first thing is that Rav Yosef was unsure if we follow the majority view. And he, as a blind person, is required to do mitzvahs. Or if you follow Rabbi Yehuda's, Rabbi Yehuda's view, and then he would have been exempt. Second of all, what we learn is, The fact that Rabbi Yosef originally thought, well, if you tell me that I'll be the happiest like Rabbi Yehuda, I'll be the happiest man because I'm doing things I'm not required to do. Mashma, that implies that would imply that his understanding, Rabbi Yosef's understanding is that if Rabbi Yehuda says that a blind person is exempt from mitzvahs, it means totally exempt. There's not even a rabbinic requirement to do a mitzvah. Which would explain why he's incredibly happy because if he sees a value in doing something you're not required to do, then it doesn't help if it's required according to the Rabbana. Now we get it why Rav Yosef is the one who is so excited by this concept that if not for that day of Matan Torah, there would have been so many other Yosefs going about their spiritual development without transforming the Shuk and the greatness of the giving of the Torah is that we could transform the, the physicality of this world to become holy. And why it's such a unique insight. The impact of the giving of the Torah. Which means that we are not just holy in spirit, but we're holy in body. And now there's the possibility of things in this world being transformed into holy things because Hashem gave us instructions. Rav Yosef understood from that that if somebody who is blind as himself would learn Torah not only would he be credited with the value of learning Torah he would be a he would have been elevated that's what he's celebrating 
And if he fulfills mitzvahs, which he is not required to do, his actions would transform the physical world because that's what Matan Torah has done. That's his big insight over here. Even for the person who is not required to fulfill the mitzvah, the impact is there. Okay, it's not 100% clear yet. Let's be honest. The only reason physical items change when we do mitzvahs with them is because of Hashem's instruction, which empowers that change. So logically then, if a person is required to fulfill a mitzvah, yes, of course, every mitzvah is going to transform the world. But if you're required to fulfill the mitzvah, surely then you have greater impact on the world because you have more of Hashem's koyach with you because you're actually fulfilling what you're required to fulfill. Whereas Rabbi Yosef seems to be saying, look at me, I'm not Mitzvah voice and I still have this incredible impact. I transform the world. Instead of saying, I can also do this. It's almost as if he's saying, I could even have this impact more than others. Now, why would he think that way? And the truth is our original question is not 100% settled yet. What was our original question? So our original question was, we said, um, if, if, uh, if, sorry, we said that according to Rav Yosef, the whole point is that the day doesn't change the world. It causes the possibility to change the world. So why did nobody mention it before Rav Yosef? We haven't yet touched on that either yet. So still something we need to understand over here. So the answer is Afim. Uh, so before we get to the answer, Afim, my Rav Yosef, Let's say that Rav Yosef's great celebration is saying that he's blind, and in spite of being blind, he still has an impact on the world. You could ask, he wasn't the first blind rabbi. Rav Yosef is not the first of the Tanoim who was blind. Even long before that, there was Baba Ben Buta, by the way. Um, he, he was probably one of the most famous blind individuals. Blinded by the Romans. Why did nobody else bring this up? That, oh, look at that. Even though not Mitzvah, you could still have an impact on the world. Rav Yosef, you're the only person who thought of this? No other blind person ever had this dilemma? Maybe you'll say, okay, this is because they, unlike Rabbi Yosef, who wasn't sure, is the halacha like the Rabbanan and I'm a chayev, or is the halacha like Rabbi Yehuda? So because he thinks there's a possibility that he's not chayev and mitzvah, that's why he's so excited at the prospect of still having an impact on the world. Maybe those other rabbis just felt, well, we're chayev and mitzvah, so no chiddush, we're no different to the rest of the population. So there's something else we need to know about the nature of Rabbi Yosef. Rav Yosef Hoyosinai. Famously, Rav Yosef and Rabbah were contemporaries. Rabbah is considered Oiker Harim with this incredible sharp mind that just like ripped concepts apart. Where Rav Yosef was very consistent and very thorough in his teaching. <coughs> so Rav Yosef used to say about himself that the ox produces the most produce. In other words, the thorough hard work produces the most information and insight. 
He was an individual that had such clarity that it was like all the Mishnayas and Brises were in his mind as, the, as if they had been given right then at Har Sinai. That's why they called him, they nicknamed him Sinai. And that's why when there was a debate who should be the leader of the Jewish community, they chose Rav Yosef. They said because everybody needs that, you know, everybody needs somebody who can produce wheat. In other words, a staple food. Not everybody can handle the sharp insights of Rabbi. Everybody needs a clear, thorough teacher like Rav Yosef. And therefore, they appointed him as the Rosh Shiva. That's why Rabbi Yosef says, He's He looks at all the angles. He's completely thorough. So from that perspective, which is Rabbi Yehuda's perspective, that perhaps a blind person is exempt from mitzvahs. And as we mentioned, Rabbi Yosef wasn't absolutely convinced that Rabbi Yehuda is wrong. He loved the Kogorim. Then he says, Wow, look how amazing this day is. Because his reality and frame of reference was the Sinai reality. He therefore entertains the possibility that maybe I am not required to do mitzvahs. And therefore maybe I don't have the same impact on this world as the next person who is required to do mitzvahs. And therefore has Hashem's instruction and power in his actions. So he would think, you know what, it's possible that I cannot impact the world to turn it holy as much as the next healthy person. But then he sees, what's my reality in life? Everybody's coming to me for instruction because everybody needs wheat. Everybody asked him practically how to paskin and they conducted themselves based on his instructions. He says, that helps me that I could feel elevated knowing that I am transformed and the world is transformed by my learning. Whereas other great sages like Baba Ben Buta or whoever else may have been blind, we don't find necessarily that they were the single voice that everybody went to to learn from. That's why he says, what a wonderful day. Because it's the great revolution of the day of Madden which transformed our world, that a mitzvah makes an item holy, and an avera on the opposite. That helped Rav Yosef, even if he, in fact, was not required to do mitzvahs, Maybe Rabbi Yehuda is right. Still, he is this incredible guide of Torah to his entire generation that must impact him. And of course, through his instruction, impact the whole world because he's giving them the halachic basis by which they could change the world. And he's having this incredible impact. This is why Rabbi Yosef has a unique celebration that perhaps the average person doesn't have. This story is a great illustration of how the esoteric and the obvious within Torah are all one. The explanation we've just given according to Nigla de Torah, which is the difference between Gavra and Chefza, prior to the giving of the Torah, the only impact of Torah could be on the person. Post Matan Torah, the impact of the giving of the Torah impacts the world itself. 
That links with how Chassidus explains it. That the Avos and those who were parts of their family, when they did mitzvahs, they just created these great, lofty, spiritual, abstract unions that we really don't begin to understand. Whereas at the time of the giving of the Torah, where that barrier between high and lower, holy and mundane was broken, and therefore the highest could reach down into the lowest, that's what opened the possibility of bringing holiness into the physical world. What Hasidus explains is now very clearly illustrated in the terms that we would use in Halacha. And of course, there are many levels to this. The moment you have something that potentially could be used for a mitzvah, that draws down some degree of holiness into this world. When you take that item from its potential state and you actually turn it into something, you take that esteric off the tree and you now put it into your esteric box because you plan to use it on sukkahs. You now start to bring an even higher level of kedusha into this world. And then, of course, when you actually say the brocha over and take the lulav and esteric, then the amount of godliness that you bring into that esrogate, into the world around you, is at its peak. As of course, is explained thoroughly in many, many, many places in Chassidus.